We're right in the, uh, we're just at the beginning of our series. We began on Wednesday night uh, with our Ash Wednesday service. We, it was a little different this year. We had a, a small sermon in there to help us get in because we're looking at empty and filled, discovering the meaning and the power of Lent. Why do we do this thing called Lent? Why is it a part of things? So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them however you get your Bible, electronic, or if you need it in the pew, it should be on page 760. 69, uh, 769, that's Romans chapter 3. If you'll do that, I want to kind of catch everybody up who wasn't able to be here on Wednesday, just briefly. I want us to begin to look at why do we do Lent? And we saw that there were three things of why we do Lent. That Lent is a season of facing our sin. This is not to make us feel guilty or ashamed. This is about just being honest. It's about entering into honesty about the ways that we still need to grow, the ways that we are broken, the ways that we miss the mark of what God is calling us to, the way, the ways that God, the places that God still needs to heal in our life. Now I know as a part of the Wesleyan tradition, we get a little worried about that. Like what does that mean? But assure, I assure you, Dr. Greathouse uh, declared that even after sanctification, there is still the need for growth in grace. We still have places of where we need to mature. And that is part of what the season of Lent is all about. To face those broken places in our lives uh, and to be honest about that. Next, Lent is a season of emptying ourselves of unnecessary comforts. Unnecessary and often distracting comforts. This is where people say, I'm giving up chocolate for Lent, or I'm, I'm giving up Facebook for Lent, or I'm giving up those kinds of things. Those things that distract us. Um, you can, the people are getting really creative about that, and I think that's okay, because it is about emptying ourselves or letting go of unnecessary and distracting comforts in order that we can have a season of directing our desire toward our Savior, who is Jesus. And so those moments, if you give up food and the stomach is rumbling, um, it is not so that you can feel holy, look how holy I am, but, oh God, the hunger of my body, make me that hungry for you. It's, it's that kind of rhythm and relationship. And so that was part of what we looked at. We looked uh, a little more intently at facing our sin uh, on, on Wednesday. And we're going to do some of that today and look at some of the emptying ourselves of those unnecessary distractions. And so if you have your Bibles open, we're going to read in just a second. But I want to tell you uh, just a little bit about this scripture and where it where its historical setting is. So Paul is writing to the church in Rome and Rome uh, he had he had never been there. These were churches that were started by other uh, believers. They were little house churches. And a, an interesting thing had happened historically. One of the Caesars had uh, decided that uh, Jews could no longer live in Rome. So anti-Semitism uh, is not a new thing. It is something that's been around for a long time. They are out. They're they're cast out. Well, many of the Jewish uh, Christian church believers and leaders were Jewish. And so that meant these little house churches that had started up that were made up of Jews and Gentiles together now were all Gentiles. Then later on, that emperor passed away and the new emperor, you know, declared all null and void. The other guys things uh, it just tends to happen. Executive order, I guess. And uh, and they 
they were able to come back. And now these little house churches that have existed without Jewish Christian leadership for a long time find themselves in a bit of a struggle. Who's in charge? We've been kind of doing this on our own for a while. Who knows what Gentile changes they made? I mean, maybe they brought in that worship chorus music or 7-Eleven music or whatever they call it. Maybe they stopped singing hymns. You know, who knows what changes they made? But now they're coming back, and I know this is hard to believe, but the church was in struggle. They were arguing. And they they were having such a disagreement that Paul found out about it out on his travels. And so he writes a letter and he begins to try to level the playing field and find a common ground. He he walks us through chapter 1 and chapter 2 where he goes back and forth between the ways that uh, non-Jews or religious outsiders miss the mark. And then he spends some time talking with Jewish or religious insiders. And today when we get to chapter 3, we're predominantly focusing on insiders. So let's read this together. And um, I want you to know I've inserted a few things. Now, that always makes people nervous when a preacher says he's inserted something into the reading. But if you look in your Bible reference, I just found this helpful. Because what Paul does in this arguing with the Jewish Christians who have now returned is he strings together a lot of Hebrew scripture from Psalms, from the prophets, from Ecclesiastes, from the wisdom literature. So from their Bible, he runs a bunch of things together. And I wanted you to hear what this means. There is also a word that is translated two different ways. One, it is the word dikaiosune. I'm not going to bother you with all, making you say it and all that. We don't have time. But dikaiosune is sometimes translated righteousness, and sometimes it's translated justice. Now, those who are in the Catholic order and, and are a part of uh, Augustine's tradition, who was a, a bit of an attorney, they like the word justice. But the earlier translation, the more Hebrew understanding of this Greek word is righteousness or right relatedness with God and with others. And so we are, uh, and if you look in your uh, NIV, you'll see they play back and forth. Sometimes they'll say just or justice, and sometimes they'll say righteous or righteousness. They're trying to play with this. But I want us to hear from a more Hebrew understanding that I believe Paul would have been trying to communicate to help us understand the word is dikaiosune, and what Paul was getting at was right relatedness with God and with others. Okay, now I've set this up. That was almost a whole sermon in itself, wasn't it? All right, let's read our scripture today. And James, I'm going to click this forward because I'm going to read it off the screen. What shall we conclude then? Do we, Jews, hear that as religious insiders, have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, or insiders and outsiders, are alike, are all under the power of sin. As it is written in Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, and Ecclesiastes 7:20, there is no one righteous, no one in right relatedness from their side, not even one. There is no one who understands or has put it all together. There is no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They have together become worthless, literally soured. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Psalm 5.9 that says their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. Or Psalm 140 verse 3, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Or Psalm 10.7, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Or Isaiah 59.7-8, which says their feet are swift to shed blood and uh, ruin and misery mark their way and the way of peace they do not know. And Psalm 36, 1, that reminds us there is no fear, there's no awe, wonder, or worship of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced of boasting. And the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous or in right relationship in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. Alrighty. There's some important things for us to remember here. The first thing that we need to remember is that this teaching that Paul was writing to them was for the Jewish Christians, the religious leaders, the ones who had founded the church, the ones who were on the inside. So today, you need to hear that as this is a teaching for those of us who've been in the church for a long, long time, who think we know things, who think that, you know, well, I've memorized a lot of Scripture, I'm, I'm a quizzing expert, or, you know, whatever that might be. I, I need to look at this. I hold degrees from uh, theological institutions that tell me, oh, I've learned enough to, to know all of this. This is for us. We need to hear this as our message today. This is a part of Lent, of living honestly in the midst. So if this is your first time in church, you're off the hook. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I want you to, I want you to hear this. I want you to know that the church, um, so often needs to hear the corrective message. Amen? We need the correction. We have not put things together well enough to do this perfectly. We are still called to follow the one who did do it perfectly. And his name is Jesus, not Jeff. So this is for us. So what does Paul mention? What does he mention in bringing all these Hebrew Scripture quotes together? First, he mentions behavior, because that's just the easy one to pick on. It's, 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 it's visible. You can see it. It's right there. So he tells them right away, we should know this as Jews. There's no one in right relationship from our side. We didn't just come in and say, oh, I'm in right relationship. I've done everything the way it should. He says, not even the smartest person has put this all together. They have all turned away. He is basically saying to Jewish people, don't you remember our story? See, if you don't understand this story, here's what you need to understand. We think of the law as something like a law book. Like we would go and lawyers would, you know, from there and find out if someone has broken the law or if there's precedent for this uh, law to be overturned or those kinds of things. But the, but the Jewish law is a story. It's a story about how God delivers the people, the children of Israel, and then gives them at Mount Sinai the first ten. What is it called? The ten what? Commandments, yes. 
And then promptly, before Moses even gets off the mountain, they break them. They break all those commandments. And so there's a few more that come up. And then they break all of those. And then there's, there's more laws. And then they break all of those. Eventually you get to 613 laws. And by the end of Deuteronomy, which they call the Torah or the teaching or the law, Moses finally says, you're going into the land that God's going to give you. Choose to do the right thing, but I know you. I've been with you in the desert for 40 years. I know you're not going to do it. And he begins to talk about what God will do because your hearts are hard. Just like Pharaoh's heart was hard, who you were delivered from. Your hearts are hard and you can't do this. But God will send someone. And then they go into the land and they live right up to it. If you just follow Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, you'll just see they just make a mess of things over and over and end up in exile. And then the prophets come in and they begin to talk about, here's why we ended up here. But wait, God is not done with you yet. God is still a part of this partnership. God is going to send someone who is going to change your heart, who is going to send His Spirit and write His laws on your heart so they're no longer tough things to do. They just come out of you because His Spirit is in you. And Paul wants them to get back in that story. Don't think that that law is what makes you righteous or puts you in right relationship. He says they have soured. How many of you have people, maybe even your own kids, who have soured to church? And maybe it's because we expected that we were righteous. Instead of being honest and humble about God's leading us in each day of our life. And he eventually says they don't do the good. They don't do the moral, the right thing. It harkens back to to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve chose that they would determine what is right and wrong rather than letting God do it. You see how he's weaving this all together. Paul's Paul's incredible. But he mentions another thing. He, He talks about evil speech. That's probably the next thing that's easy. In verses 13 and 14, it says their throats are graves. They bring death. Think about your speech. Do the words that come out of your mouth or out of your thumbs, do they bring life or do they bring death? Think about that, church. These are are words for us. These are not words for people out there. This is words for us. We claim to follow Christ. Are the words that come out, are they life-giving or death-giving? Deceit, poisonous words. He's not talking about CNN or Fox News. He's talking about the church. He's talking about those who should know because they've been taught. Are we deceiving? Are our words poisonous? Cursing, he's not talking about cussing. He's talking about swearing. He's talking about declaring the worst about the image of God, which is found in what? Every human being. Where are we? You don't have to know that human being personally in a relationship, but are you sending out words that say the worst about that image of God? And then right, he just knows that all of this comes out of a heart of bitterness. What else does Paul mention? Violence. That they're swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery follow them. It says they don't even know what peace looks like. Church, do we know what peace looks like? Or are we buying into the thing that says greater violence is needed to keep lesser violence at bay? Jesus 
seem to say that violence can never stop violence. There's a different way that we are called to. What else does Paul mention? This one, this one could hurt. There's no fear of God in their eyes. This is verse 18. Fear means awe. Like, wow. If God were to be here right now, what would happen? It means wonder, amazement at what God is doing and can doing. And fear means worship, that we are invited into that. Think about how you come into the service. I, I read this poem uh, earlier. I, want, I wanted you to just hear the end of it because Annie Dillard, I think, sums this up. She's talking about Christians once they stopped being persecuted. And, and she says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs because that's where they, they used to have to go into the graveyards to worship because that was the only place that was safe for them to worship the Lord. I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews. For God may come and the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Wow. He says, oh, Jewish leaders, where are you? You've forgotten your own story. The thing that you're holding up is the thing that you're holding up to win your argument is the very thing that undoes your argument. Or as in the words of this great philosopher Inigo Mentoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) Paul wants them to know that the only path that we have as human beings is one of humility. To be humble. Not because we're terrible or, you know, we just are worms or those, but but because there is one who can show us the way. And, And he ends up saying in those last verses that the law makes us conscious of our sin. I think of it this way, because the next question, and he deals with it later on in, in, this, in this chapter, he deals with it, then what good is the law? Why do we have the law? I think it's, it's kind of like a diagnostic manual. This is the DSM-5. Many of you know I was a therapist before I was a pastor, and so I had to be very familiar with the DSM-5. It tells you all of the things. Actually, I'm old enough that it was the DSM-4. Um, it, you had to know what was going on. You, you, you used this to kind of, as somebody came in and presented certain things, you could then kind of have a handle on that and you could help bring a diagnosis. And Paul says the law is like that. It diagnoses. It makes you conscious of your sin. It lets you know what you're struggling with. But it does not bring the healing. And you Jewish leaders should know better than this. You church folk who have been around for a long time should know better than this. That the Scriptures, the law, are useful to diagnose our problem. But this book in and of itself cannot bring your healing. The one that this book points to is the only one who can heal you. That can bring the treatment. And so, why then do we have Lent? 
Let's move towards our close. We're emptying ourselves of needless and distracting comforts. Doesn't it, it doesn't make us holy to fast or to spend more time in prayer, but it begins to diagnose our need. As you sit there in the silence trying to pray the words to God and every little image is running in and your commercials and your Facebook thread and your Twitter feed and all of that is running through your mind, you begin to see what you have been placing your time in. And it gives you opportunity then to say to the one who can bring the healing, Oh, Jesus, help me to be either a better steward of this thing on this device or to let go of it. To read more Scripture is to look at all of these things. Now, don't worry. You can never underestimate the human capacity for self-deception. That's why we do this every year. It's not just a one and done. The ancient people said this was a season that we need to simply go through every year as a part of this. And so we invite you to practice or try something. Try spending five minutes of quiet alone with God. Try reading Scripture a little more. Try fasting a meal. Try giving up. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm just amazed. As I was looking through and doing research on this, the, the capacity for self-deception, I saw so many articles of like, lose 20 pounds during Lent by giving up the right foods. Or... Give yourself an extra bonus at Easter because you've saved and not spent on this item that you gave up for Lent. That's not what it's about. It's about being honest and letting those practices, or as our Scriptures tells us today, letting the law make us conscious of where we still need God to help us grow and mature. And that's why I invite you into Lent. I don't want to make you miserable. I don't want to make you just give up food or lose weight or save money. The church is inviting us to let these practices diagnose us so that we can turn to the one who brings the treatment. So if this is the diagnosis, I I can't just leave us here. I was always told, always give good news. So where's the treatment? Well, you only have to go a little bit further. In Romans 3, 21 to 26, Paul goes on from there. This is right following where we were. He continues, it seems, but wait, he's going to do a judo move. He's going to flip this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The right relationship with God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scripture, actually testify and point towards. And this right relatedness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now I know you're going to think that that's wrong. This is actually the better translation. Most of your scriptures will have a little J or an I or a little thing that you follow down into the margins. And you will see that this translation is accurate. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because what we have done is it usually says faith in Christ. And what we have made is then my belief in Jesus. Jesus makes me saved and it makes me in control of it. But the truth of the matter is, is that this right relationship is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It's not because of me. It's because Jesus was faithful. And we need to hear that. Now, there is our part because it says this righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. So there is a part that we do. But let's, let's be honest about our part. Our part is about trusting what Jesus has already accomplished. Amen? 
There is no difference then between Jew or Gentile, religious insiders or outsiders. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are made righteous or brought into right relationship freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. That's good news. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. That Jesus accomplished the work, took all of the sin, and cleared the path from God's side that we can trust and enter into the saving relationship. We can live this. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness, His right-relatedness to us, that God never gave up on the project to restore humanity to the full. Because in His patience, He had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. This should be good news. God is very patient. And that means you can honestly come before God and you can say, God, this is where I am. And God will say, good, let's let's journey in this together. He did it to demonstrate his right relatedness at the present time so as to be the one in right relationship and the one who makes right relationship possible for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Is that good news this morning, church? That is so good. That is the healing. That is the treatment. And this is something that we journey with on and on. So I close today by saying, are you ready for your first treatment? If you have never said yes to the work that Jesus faithfully accomplished, today could be your day where you could say yes. I'm placing my trust in what Jesus has done. And I'm going to come honestly, and I know there are places that God still has to grow some things in me. Maybe you've been in this church all your life. And you think that because you memorized a bunch of this, that it makes you righteous. Or that because you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with people who do, that that makes you righteous, or something like that. Can I tell you today, in the words of Paul and Inigo Mentoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. And it is only in the entering in of using Scripture to let the Holy Spirit make us conscious of where we need to grow and then trusting in the treatment, the only one who can give us treatment, and that is Jesus Christ. And He is available to any who would say yes to Him. Any who would call on His name will be saved. You heard that read to you this morning. And He is available here for you today. Are you ready for some trial and error? Because that's what it's going to take. You're not going to do this perfectly. So get over yourself and trust Him because God is patient and He is ready and willing to walk with you on this journey. My dad always said, one of his favorite lines was, Jeff, just enjoy the journey. It's a journey, folks. It's not a moment. It's a journey. It includes moments. It absolutely includes them. We have to take the moment where we say yes. But it is a long-haul, lifelong journey to see what God is going to do in your life, in my life, and in our life together. Are you ready to be emptied and filled? Let's pray. Father, what good news from our brother Paul, who understood a thing or two about thinking he was righteous, until 
your glory blinded him to his own self-righteousness. God, the truth is, so many of us, we can do the same. And so today, you invite us back on the journey. During the season of Lent, as we practice little things here and there, may we realize what they're there for, to, to make us aware of where we still need to grow. So diagnose us as individuals, diagnose us as a church, and invite us on the journey of continuing to sustain and give us grace. Which is why we have communion, or the Eucharist, whatever we want to call it, the Lord's Supper. It's a little bit of grace that helps us to live out this life as we come honestly with our hands forward because we need, we need the treatment. Help us today.